Ingersoll's lecture entitled Some Reasons Why. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ingersoll's lecture entitled Some Reasons Why, Section 8 of the book, Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Volume 2. Ladies and gentlemen, the history of the world shows that religion has made enemies instead of friends. That one word, religion, paints the horizon of the past with every form of agony and torture, and when one pronounces the name of religion, we think of fifteen hundred years of persecution, of six thousand years of hatred, slander, and vituperation. Strange but true that those who have loved God most have loved men least. Strange that in countries where there has been the most religion, there has been the most agony. And that is one reason why I am opposed to what is known as religion. By religion I mean the duties that men are supposed to owe to God. By religion I mean not what man owes to man, but what we owe to some invisible, infinite, and supreme being. The question arises, can any relation exist between finite man and infinite being? An infinite being is absolutely conditional. An infinite being cannot walk, cannot receive, and a finite being cannot give to the infinite. Can I increase his happiness or decrease his misery? Does he need my strength or my life? What can I do for him? I say nothing. For one, I do not believe there is any God who gives rain or sunshine for praying. For one, I do not believe there is any being who helps man simply because he kneels. I may be mistaken, but that is my doctrine, that the finite cannot by any possibility help the infinite, or the infinite be indebted to the finite, that the finite cannot by any possibility assist a being who is all in all. What can we do? We can help man. We can help clothe the naked, feed the hungry. We can help break the chains of the slave. We can help weave a garment of joy that will finally cover this world. That is all that man can do. Wherever he has endeavored to do more, he has simply increased the misery of his fellows. I can find out nothing of these things myself by my unaided reasoning. If there is an infinite God, and I have not reason enough to comprehend his universe, whose fault is it? I am told that we have the inspired will of God. I do not know exactly what they mean by inspired. Not two sects agree on that word. Some tell me that every great work is inspired, that Shakespeare is inspired, I would be less apt to dispute that than a similar remark about any other book on this earth. If Jehovah had wanted to have a book written, the inspiration of which should not be disputed, he should have waited until Shakespeare lived. Whatever they mean by inspiration, they at least mean that it is true. 
If it is true, it does not need to be inspired. The truth will take care of itself. Nothing except a falsehood needs inspiration. What is inspiration? A man looks at the sea, and the sea says something to him. Another man looks at the same sea, and the sea tells another story to him. The sea cannot tell the same story to any two human beings. There is not a thing in nature, from a pebble to a constellation, that tells the same story to any two human beings. It depends upon the man's experience, his intellectual development, and what chord of memory it touches. One looks upon the sea and is filled with grief. Another looks upon it and laughs. Last year, riding in the cars from Boston to Portsmouth, sat opposite me a lady and gentleman. As we reached the latter place, the woman, for the first time in her life, caught a burst of the sea, and she looked and said to her husband, Isn't that beautiful? And he looked and said, I bet you can dig clams right there. Another illustration. A little while ago a gentleman was walking with another in South Carolina at Charleston, one who had been upon the other side. Said the northerner to the southerner, Did you ever see such a night as this? Did you ever in your life see such a moon? Oh, my God, said he, you ought to have seen that moon before the war. I simply say these things to convince you that everything in nature has a different story to tell every human being. So the Bible tells a different story to every man that reads it. History proves what I say. Why so many sects? Why so much persecution? Simply because two people couldn't understand it exactly alike. You may reply that God intended it should be so understood, and that is the real revelation that God intended. For instance, I write a letter to Smith. I want to convey to him certain thoughts. If I am honest, I will use the words which will convey to him my thoughts, but not being infinite, I don't know exactly how Smith will understand my words. But if I were infinite, I would be bound to use the words that I know Smith would get my exact idea from. If God intended to make a revelation to me, he has to make it to me through my brain and my reasoning. He cannot make a revelation to another man for me. That other man will have God's word for it, but I will only have that man's word for it. As that man has been dead for several thousand years, and as I don't know what his reputation was for truth and veracity in the neighborhood in which he lived, I will wait for the Lord to speak again. Suppose when I read it, the revelation to me through the Bible is that it is not true, and God knew that I would know that when I read it, and knew if I did not say it I would be dishonest. Is it possible that he would damn me for being honest, and give me wings if I would play the hypocrite? The inspiration of the Bible depends upon the ignorance of the gentleman who reads it. Yet they tell me this book was written by the creator of every shining star. 
Now let us see. I want to be honest and candid. I have just as much at stake in the way of soul as any doctor of divinity that ever lived, and more than some I have met. According to this book, the first attempt at peopling this world was a failure. God had to destroy all but eight. He saved some of the same kind to start again, which I think was a mistake. After that, the people still getting worse, he selected from the wide world a few of the tribe of Abraham. He had no time to waste with everybody. He had no time to throw away on Egypt. It had at that time a vast and splendid civilization, in which there were free schools, in which the one man married the one wife, where there were courts of law, where there were codes of laws. Neither could he give attention to India, that had at that time a literature as splendid almost as ours, a language as perfect, that had produced poets, philosophers, statesmen. He had no time to waste with them, but took a few of the tribe of Abraham, and he did his best to civilize these people. He was their governor, their executive, their supreme court. He established a despotism, and from Mount Sinai he proclaimed his laws. They didn't pay much attention to them. He wrought thousands of miracles to convince them that he was God. Isn't it perfectly wonderful that the priest of one religion never believes the miracles told by the priest of another? Is it possible that they know each other? I heard a story the other day. A gentleman was telling a very remarkable circumstance that happened to himself, and all the listeners except one said, Is it possible? Did you ever hear such a wonderful thing in all your life? They noticed that this one man didn't appear to take a vivid interest in the story, so one said to him, You don't express much astonishment at the story. No, says he, I am a liar myself. <laughs> I find by reading this book that a worse government was never established than that established by Jehovah, that the Jews were the most unfortunate people who lived upon the globe. Let us compare this book. In all civilized countries it is not only admitted, but passionately asserted that slavery is an infamous crime, that a war of extermination is murder, that polygamy enslaves woman, degrades man, and destroys home, that nothing is more infamous than the slaughter of decrepit men and helpless women, and of prattling babes that the captured maiden should not be given to her captors, that wives should not be stoned to death for differing in religion from their husbands. We know there was a time in the history of most nations when all these crimes were regarded as divine institutions. Nations entertaining these views today are called savage, and with the exception of the Fiji Islanders, some tribes in Central Africa and a few citizens of Delaware, no human being can be found degraded enough to agree upon those subjects with Jehovah. Today the fact that a nation has abolished and abandoned those things is the only evidence that it can offer to show that it is not still barbarous. 
but a believer in the inspiration of the bible is compelled to say there was a time when slavery was right when polygamy was the highest form of virtue when wars of extermination were waged with the sword of mercy and when the creator of the whole world commanded the soldier to sheathe the dagger of murder in the dimpled breast of infancy the believer of inspiration of the bible is compelled to say there was a time when it was right for a husband to murder his wife because they differed upon subjects of religion i deny that such a time ever was if i knew the real god said it i would still deny it four thousand years ago if the bible is true god was in favor of slavery polygamy wars of extermination and religious persecution now we are told the devil is in favor of all those things and god is opposed to them in other words the devil stands now where god stood four thousand years ago Yet they tell me God is just as good now as he was then, and the devil just as bad now as God was then. Other nations believed in slavery, polygamy, and war, and persecution without ever having received one ray of light from heaven. That shows that a special revelation is not necessary to teach a man to do wrong. Other nations did no worse without the Bible than the Jews did with it. Suppose the devil had inspired a book. In what respect would he have differed from God on the subject of slavery, polygamy, wars of extermination, and religious persecution? Suppose we knew that after God had finished his book the devil had gotten possession of it and written a few passages to suit himself. Which passages, O oh Christian, would you pick out now as having probably been written by the devil? Which of these two? Love thy neighbor as thyself? Or kill all the males among the little ones, and kill every man, but all the women and girls keep alive for yourselves? Which of those two passages would they select as having been written by the devil? If God wrote the last there is no need of a devil is there a christian in the wide world who does not wish that god from the thunder and lightning of sinai had said you shall not enslave your fellow man i am opposed to any man who is in favor of slavery if revolution is needed at all it is to prevent man enslaving his fellow man but they said god did the best he could that the Jews were so bad that he had to come up kind of slow. If he had told them suddenly they must not murder and steal, they would not have paid any respect to the Ten Commandments. Suppose you go to the cannibal islands to prevent the gentlemen there from eating missionaries, and you found they ate them raw. The first move is to induce them to cook them. After you get them to eat cooked missionaries, you will then, without their knowing it, occasionally slip in a little mutton. We will go on gradually decreasing missionaries and increasing mutton, until finally the last will be so cultivated that they will prefer the sheep to the priest. I think the missionaries would object to that mode, of course. 
I know this was written by the Jews themselves. If they were to write it now, it would be different. Today they are a civilized people. I do not wish it understood that a word I say tonight touches the slightest prejudice in any man's mind against the Jewish people. They are as good a people as live today. I will say right here, they never had any luck until Jehovah abandoned them. Now we come to the New Testament. They tell me that it is better than the old. I say it is worse. The great objection to the Old Testament is that it is cruel. But in the Old Testament the revenge of God stopped with the portals of the tomb. He never threatened punishment after death. He never threatened one thing beyond the grave. It was reserved for the New Testament to make known the doctrine of eternal punishment. Is the New Testament inspired? I have not time to give many reasons, but I will give some. In the first place they tell me the very fact that the witnesses disagree in minor matters show that they have not conspired to tell the same story. Good. And I say, in every lawsuit where four or five witnesses testify, or endeavor to testify to the same transaction, it is natural that they should differ on minor points. Why? Because no two occupy exactly the same position. No two see exactly alike. No two remember precisely the same and their disagreement is due to and accounted for by the imperfection of human nature, and the fact that they did not all have an equal opportunity to know. But if you admit or say that the four witnesses were inspired by an infinite being who did see it all, then they should remember all the same, because inspiration does not depend on memory. That brings me to another point. Why were there four Gospels? What is the use of more than one correct account of anything? If you want to spread it, send copies. No human being has got the ingenuity to tell me why there were four Gospels when one correct Gospel would have been enough. Why should there have been four original multiplication tables? One is enough, and if anybody has got any use for it, he can copy that one. The very fact that we have got four Gospels shows that it is not an inspired book. The next point is that, according to the New Testament, the salvation of the world depended upon the atonement. Only one of the books in the New Testament says anything about that, and that is John. The church followed John. And they ought to follow John, because the church wrote that book called John. According to that, the whole world was to be damned on account of the sins of one man, and that absurdity was the father and mother of another absurdity, that the whole world could be saved on account of the virtue of another man. I deny both propositions. No man can sin for me, no man can be virtuous for me. I must reap what I sow. 
but they say the law must be satisfied. What kind of a law is it that would demand punishment of the innocent? Just think of it. Here is a man about to be hanged, and another comes up and says, That man has got a family, and I have not. That man is in good health, and I am not well. And I will be hung in his place. And the governor says, All right, a murder has been committed, and we've got to have a hanging. We don't care who. Under the Mosaic dispensation there was no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. If a man committed a murder, he brought a pair of doves or a sheep to the priest, and the priest laid his hands on the animal, and the sins of the man were transferred to the animal. You see how that could be done easy enough. Then they killed the animal and sprinkled its blood on the altar. That let the man off. And why did God demand the sacrifice of a sheep? I will tell you. Because priests love mutton. To make the innocent suffer is the greatest crime. I don't wish to go to heaven on the virtues of somebody else. If I can't settle by the books and go, I don't wish to go. I don't want to feel as if I was there on sufferance, that I was in the poorhouse of the universe, supported by the town. They tell us Judas betrayed Christ. Well, if Christ had not been betrayed, no atonement would have been made, and then every human soul would have been damned, and heaven would have been for rent. Supposing that Judas knew the Christian system, then perhaps he thought that by betraying Christ he could get forgiven, not only for the sins that he had already committed, but for the sin of betrayal. And if on the way to Calvary and later some brave heroic soul had rescued Christ from the mob, he would have made his own damnation sure. Ah, oh, it won't do. There is no logic in that. They say God tried to civilize the Jews. If he had succeeded according to the Christian system, we all would have been damned, because if the Jews had been civilized, they would not have crucified Christ. They would have believed in the freedom of speech, and as a result the world would have been lost for two thousand years. The Christian world has been trying to explain the atonement, and they have always ended by failing to explain it. Now I come to the second objection, which is that certain belief is necessary to salvation. I will believe according to the evidence. In my mind are certain scales which weigh everything, and my integrity stands there and knows which side goes up and which side goes down. If I am an honest man, I will report the weights like an honest man. They say I must believe a certain thing, or I will be eternally damned. They tell me that to believe is the safer way. I deny it. The safest thing you can do is be honest. No man, when the shadows of the last hours were gathering around him, ever wished that he had lived the life of a hypocrite. If I find at the day of judgment that I have been mistaken, I will say so like a man. If God tells me then that he is the author of the Old Testament, I will admit that he is worse than I thought he was, and when he comes to pronounce sentence upon me, I will say to him, 
do unto others as you would that others should do unto you. I have a right to think. I cannot control my belief. My brain is my castle, and if I don't defend it, my soul becomes a slave and a serf. If you throw away your reason, your soul is not worth saving. Salvation depends not upon belief, but upon deed, upon kindness, upon justice, upon mercy. Your own deeds are your savior, and you can be saved in no other way. I am told in this testament to love my enemies. I cannot. I will not. I don't hate enemies. I don't wish to injure enemies. But I don't care about seeing them. I don't like them. I love my friends, and the man who loves enemies and friends loves me. The doctrine of non-resistance is born of weakness. The man that first said it said it because it was the best he could do under the circumstances. While the church said, love your enemies, in her sacred vestments gleamed the daggers of assassination. With her cunning hand she wore the purple for hypocrisy and placed the crown upon the brow of crime. For more than one thousand years larceny held the scales of justice, and hypocrisy wore the mitre, and the tiara of Christ was in fact God. He knew of the future. He knew what crimes and horrors would be committed in his name. He knew the fires of persecution would climb around the limbs of countless martyrs, that brave men and women would languish in dungeons and darkness, that the church would use instruments of torture, that in his name his followers would trade in human flesh, that cradles would be robbed and women's breasts unbabed for gold, and yet he died with voiceless lips. If Christ was God, why did he not tell his disciples and through them the world Man shall not persecute his fellow man. Why didn't he say, I am God? Why didn't he explain the doctrine of the Trinity? Why didn't he tell what manner of baptism was pleasing to him? Why didn't he say, the Old Testament is true? Why didn't he write his testament himself? Why did he leave his words to accident, to ignorance, to malice, and to chance? Why didn't he say something positive, definite, satisfactory about another world? Why did he not turn the tear-stained hope of immortality to the glad knowledge of another life? Why did he go dumbly to his death, leaving the world to misery and to doubt? Why? Because he was a man. Colonel Ingersoll read several extracts from the Bible, which he said originated with Zoroaster, Buddha, Cicero, Epictetus, Pythagoras, and other ancient writers. And he read extracts from various pagan writers, which he claimed compared favorably with the best things in the Bible. He continued, No God has a right to create a man who is to be eternally damned. Infinite wisdom has no right to make a failure, and a man who is to be eternally damned is not a conspicuous success. 
Infinite wisdom has no right to make an instrument that will not finally pay a dividend. No god has a right to add to the agony of this universe, and yet around the angels of immortality Christianity has coiled this serpent of eternal pain. Upon love's breast the church has placed that asp, and yet people talk to me about the consolations of religion. A few days ago the bark tiger was found upon the wide sea, a hundred and twenty-six days from Liverpool. For nine days not a mouthful of food or a drop of water was to be had. There was on board the captain, mate, and eleven men. When they had been out a hundred and seventeen days they killed the captain's dog. Nine days more, no food, no water, and Captain Kruger stood upon the deck in the presence of his starving crew with revolver in his hand, put it upon his temple, and said, Boys, this can't last much longer. I am willing to die to save the rest of you. The mate grasped the revolver from his hand and said, Wait, and the next day upon the horizon of despair was the smoke of the ship which rescued them. Do you tell me tonight if Captain Kruger was not a Christian? and he had sent that ball crashing through his generous brain that there was an almighty waiting to clutch his naked soul that he might damn him forever. It won't do. Ah, but they tell me you have no right to pick the bad things out of the Bible. I say an infinite God has no right to put bad things into his Bible. Does anybody believe if God was going to write a book now, he would uphold slavery, that he would favor polygamy, that he would say, kill the heathen, stab the women, dash out the brains of the children? We have civilized him. We make our own God, and we make him better day by day. Some honest people really believe that in some wonderful way, we are indebted to Moses for geology, to Joshua for astronomy and military tactics, to Samson for weapons of war, to Daniel for holy curses, to Solomon for the art of cross-examination, to Jonah for the science of navigation, to St. Paul for steamships and locomotives, to the four gospels for telegraphs and sewing machines, to the apocalypse for looms, sawmills, and telephones, and that to the Sermon on the Mount we are indebted for mortars and Krupp guns. We are told that no nation has ever been civilized without a Bible. The Jews had one, and yet they crucified a perfectly innocent man. They couldn't have done much worse without a Bible. God must have known six thousand years ago that it was impossible to civilize people without a Bible just as well as they know it now. Why did he ever allow a nation to be without a Bible? Why didn't he give a few leaves to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, take from the Bible the miracles, and I admit that the good passages are true? If they are true, they don't need to be inspired. Miracles are the children of mendacity. Nothing can be more wonderful than the majestic, sublime, and eternal march of cause and effect. 
Reason must be the final arbiter. An inspired book cannot stand against a demonstrated fact. Is a man to be rewarded eternally for believing without evidence? Or against evidence? Do you tell me that the less brain a man has, the better chance he has for heaven? Think of a heaven filled with men who never thought. Better that all that is should cease to be. Better that God had never been. Better that all the springs and seeds of things should fall and wither in great nature's realm. Better that causes and effects should lose relation. Better that every life should change to breathless death and voiceless blank, and every star to blind oblivion and moveless naught, than that this religion should be true. The religion of the future is humanity. The religion of the future will say to every man, you have the right to think and investigate for yourself. Liberty is my religion. Everything that is true, every good thought, every beautiful thing, every self-denying action, all these make my Bible. Every bubble, every star are passages in my Bible. A constellation is a chapter. Every shining world is a part of it. You cannot interpolate it. You cannot change it. It is the same forever. My Bible is all that speaks to man. Every violet, every blade of grass, every tree, every mountain crowned with snow, every star that shines, every throb of love, every honest act, all that is good and true combined make my Bible. And upon that book I stand. End of Ingersoll's Lecture, Some Reasons Why. This is a LibriVox recording, read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, on April 6th, 2009.